Hello, I'm Wayne Park, and welcome to Oikonomics, a podcast about the science of ministry, work, administration, and the summing up of everything. Keep coming back for relevant teachings and talks on these subjects and more. Please enjoy the show. We're continuing our talk on truly spiritual work. And in the previous episode, I talked about two things. First, the futility of work. And I set the stage there for a lot of the pain and uh, the meaninglessness of work, especially as it's presented in the book of Ecclesiastes. And then the second piece, the hope of work, as we talked about how there is indeed something on the other side of heaven and that we can believe that in the redeemed new heavens as well as the new earth that our work actually counts towards something that it is not something that just burns up in the fire and really all we do is polish the brass on sinking ships no what we do on earth in our work matters it matters for eternity as well and so in that regard um, i'd like to continue today in a third topic just along this theme of the hope of work The third subject is the scope of work. I'd like to talk about just how far good work goes. Because at this point, you might have the question, well, what exactly are we talking about here? If you're saying that we can believe that good work outlasts the stars, that it exists into eternity, and that there is something, there is a tree on the other side of the wall, well then, just exactly how far are we talking about it? What are we talking? Does this include all work? Um, Everything that we do, does it have repercussions into eternity? And so that is what I'd like to talk about today, the scope of all of this, the scope of work. So to set the stage, I'm going to read from a very important text. In fact, today we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is an interesting book where Paul gives his understanding, his cosmic worldview of the mission of Christ in the world. Now you might say, I know that. I know that verse that you're going to read. It's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace we have been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is the work of God. That's a good verse, but that's not the verse I'm thinking about. There is another verse I'm thinking about that is bigger. It's able to embrace a whole lot more. A whole lot more. And that is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Let me back up here to verse 8, just so that you can read the context a little bit. Paul says, In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on the earth. That word, the summing up of all things, is a rare word in the New Testament. In the Greek, anakephalio. Anakephalio. What it means there, the summing up of all things, it's difficult to translate, but it has this meaning of summing up everything under Christ, Uh, bringing everything to a head, under a head. Arguably, to put everything under a new head. 
the word here is recapitulate, recapitulate. To not just capitulate, but to recapitulate. And the connotation there is that under Adam, with the fall, everything, including work, became painful, futile, toil, pointless, pointless. But under Christ, everything became, it becomes recapitulated, placed under a new headship, such that it's almost as if, think of it this way, Christ reboots all of creation. And in all of creation includes work. Work gets rebooted, that now it has purpose. It's not just toil and meaningless, but it has posterity, legacy. We can build knowing that on the other side of the wall, there is something substantial, something more real than me, more real, uh, more real than the work I do today and now. There is something real, very real on the other side. I think it's strengthened when, by the uh, latter part of verse 10 there where it says, uh, things in the heavens and things on the earth. You know, when you grasp this recapitulating that Christ is doing, this reheading, rejoining everything back under himself, that if a schism, if a separation was created under Adam, heaven and earth was, was, was broken apart and separated under Christ, things are joined together in heaven and on earth such that there is significance to eternity but also economics. There's significance to the cosmos but also the company and the corporation. That there is a value for souls but also science and cities. We can live in praise, but we can also live in parenting. Ministry is just as important as macroeconomics and medicine. We can sing our hallelujahs, but also celebrate the humanities. We can look for faith, but also look for finance. You can experience shalom, and you can even work for schlumberger. I can go on and on. I have a whole list here actually in front of me, but you get the idea, hopefully, that recapitulated, summed up under Christ, as it says in verse 10 of Ephesians 1, what we have is heaven and earth kissing each other once again with the end result that what you do matters now. And in fact, I would even say that this understanding of the summing up of all things in Christ, uh, especially as it is central to Paul's thought in Ephesians, it actually makes a lot more sense of the book of Ephesians. The entire epistle coheres. It comes together in a way, especially under this idea of summing up, of recapitulation. It comes to get together in a way that it makes sense of the entire letter. It's as if we're understanding now what Paul is saying here is quite cosmic in scope. Allow me to read for you another section where now your understanding of, of the summing up of all things, of recapitulation under Christ, um, it will make sense of even more. Chapter 3, verses uh, 1 on, I'm going to read for you. This is what Paul says. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, 
that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. Now that, for, that word, the mystery, is important because he keeps referring to this mystery. In fact, he refers to it back in chapter 1. Um, in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, He made known to us the mystery of his will. Well, here he alludes to this mystery once again. I believe the mystery he's talking about is everything that we've just outlined, this summing up of everything in Christ. But he gets a little bit more explicit, a little bit more granular here. So allow me to continue. Chapter 3, verse 3. By revelation there was made known to me this mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Now, once again, here's a clarifying statement in verse 6, to be specific. So he's expounding this mystery in a greater deal of granularity. He says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. He's talking about this cross-cultural experiment that is the church, this new type of church where both Jews and Gentiles are coming together as one. Now, I'm going to unpack this just for a little bit, and you're going to see at the end how this comes back full circle to work. So all of this allusion to this mystery that Paul is making, this mystery, what is this mystery that you're talking about? Well, he has these little snippets of clarifying statements, chapter 3, verse 6, to be specific, or even back in chapter 1, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, he says, that is, or in other words, the summing up of all things in Christ. So this mystery is this thing um, that we've been talking about, this big vision of everything in heaven and on earth cosmically reunited or reheaded under Christ. But here, Paul digresses, or seemingly he seems to digress for a bit and talk about the multi-ethnic church or the cross-cultural church, the church that is comprised of both Jew and Gentile. What does this have to do with work? What does this have to do with this big cosmic picture of reuniting heaven and earth together? I think what Paul is doing is this. I think he's onto this big idea of the cosmic reunification of all things, of, this, of spirit and matter under Christ. But he's talking specifically about this church, this cross-cultural experiment of Jew and Gentile. And even currently as we speak, we can even take that to apply to Jew and Palestinian. That this new body, this new constituted reality under Christ, that what are we going to call it? Let's, uh, is it going to be a synagogue? Is it going to be a new type of Jewish temple? We'll call it the ecclesia, the church. This new church that unites divided peoples, Jew, Palestinian, Jew, and Gentile, I believe Paul is saying this is the beta test. This is the beta test that if this thing called the church, the ecclesia, of the united peoples together in one community, if this works, then this whole thing works. This whole idea of the cosmic reunification of all things reheaded under Christ is waiting with bated breath to see if the multi-ethnic church works. That's what I think Paul is onto in Ephesians. 
He's talking about this cosmic reheading of all things, but he's using this cross-cultural phenomenon of the church as the pilot project to see if this new thing, this cosmic reheading, actually holds together. Sadly, I think we're still waiting for the results. And we don't have to look over in the Middle East to see if this experiment is actually working out. We can look right here in our backyard, right, right here in our own city in Houston, how divided the church can be, how divided peoples can be. Has the gospel, in fact, truly brought together Jew and Gentile? In some ways, Paul ups the ante on us. He's calling us out to this great cosmic vision, and yet we're not able to live this in reality right here in our own backyard. I think the indictment on us today is that we still have race problems. And if we can't solve our race problems within our own churches, let alone, then how does this whole cosmic vision stand? I don't think it's an indictment on Christ or this vision of recapitulation, but more so an indictment on us, that race matters, that the ability of us to reconcile with people not like us, our ability to go cross-culturally and to engage and to embrace and to become one new humanity, one new humanity, he uses that phrase, Paul does, in many ways is a reflection of what Christ is doing with the entire cosmos. Let me say that one more time for effect. Our capacity as the church to be one new humanity, I think it anticipates this greater project of reuniting one new reality, one new cosmos under Christ, both heaven and earth, both spiritual and material. So yes, there is a dimension of race to all of this, that if we are talking about our work mattering, um, and that, that substance matters, that our, our, our physicality matters, that we are not Gnostics after all, then that also must encompass the question of race, of racial identity. Because after all, that I think is what Paul is onto here, as he's anticipating, hopefully, this one new humanity united together, and therefore, we are, we are the, the expression of this new cosmos united under Christ. So you see that the scope, the scope of work, it's far-reaching. It's, it's cosmic. It's, it's engaging not just spirit, but also matter. It's reuniting all of these things under Christ. At this time, I'd like to round off my comments on the scope of work with one last reflection, also from Ephesians. Paul continues in verse 8 of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 8, as he's really at this time enraptured by this idea of this new humanity and this new cosmos united under Christ, he says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ 
Can you hear it cohering that this, especially as we understand this payload idea of the summing up of all things, you can hear now this is why Paul is so passionate about the multi-ethnic church or the cross-cultural church. And he says, it, this, this privilege, this, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles. And in verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that this manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and, and the authorities in the heavenly places. This administration of the mystery that Paul talks about in the Greek, this uh, oikonomia to mysteriu, this administration, this administering of this mystery, this great mystery which we've already been talking about at length, that Christ is summing up all things in himself. He's talking now about a new administration for this, a new organization that I believe will come to be the church, essentially. He's talking about this new organized, this new institution, this new place where the mystery will dwell. Um, this new, one new humanity, this united thing. It's, it's not just going to happen like that. It's going to require good administration. Administration. See, you don't just bring Jew and Palestinian or Jew and Gentile you don't just bring black and white or people from this side of the tracks and that side of the tracks. You don't just smash them together and say, there, have fun, be one new humanity together. No, it requires organization. It requires wise stewardship. It requires good administration. You can tell that I'm passionate about this. This brings together two of my greatest passions in ministry. One is work and the other is the multi-ethnic cross-cultural church. You see that word oikonomia, oikonomia to mysterio. Um, oikonomia at, at its root is oikos. Oikos is the Greek word for house. Oikonomos is a manager of the house. Now some of you might be oikonomos. You might be managers of, of household affairs, administrators. Oikonomia is household management. That's the word that's used here. If I can take it a step further, oikonomica, which incidentally you may have noticed is the wacky sounding title of my website. Why does Wayne have a, a website called oikonomica? It sounds like something Russian or something from, from some strange language that just, it just, what does that mean? Well, oikonomica is, is uh, derived from this word oikos or oikonomia, which is essentially where we get the word economics from, economics. Aristotle used this word oikonomica to talk not just about household management, but get this, this is cool. <laughs> the science of household management. That when it comes to creating one new humanity, and bringing divided parties together, it requires a science, a strategy, good diplomacy, good skills. You don't just, like I said, you don't just bring disparate elements together. It requires good administration, good dis diplomacy, uh, good, good political navigating skills, good systems awareness and emotional quotient. In that sense, economics is not just the study of money or finance. 
It's the science of wise stewardship and good management of the household, bringing together disparate, seemingly incompatible elements. But isn't that what the gospel is all about, especially as it's presented in Ephesians 1.10, the recapitulation of all things under Christ? And so what we're talking about here is that you don't just recapitulate and boom, everything's united, but it requires good stewardship. It requires good, good oikonomos, good managers, good stewards. And the funny thing is when I was in seminary, I learned everything except management. I learned nothing about building good spreadsheets and very little about Strangely, I, I did not learn enough about good people management. I learned how to care for people. I learned how to uh, visit, do good visitations, and how to pray for people. But I never learned how to lead a board. It's ironic. And in the midst of all of this, the great irony is that we are trained in seminary for ministry, and yet we are not trained for good administration such that it would almost seem that the people in the pews, workers, you, those of you who actually know how to interpret a spreadsheet, you might actually be better, workers might actually be better for the great administration of this mystery than some guy who spent the last 10 years studying dead languages and uh, obscure theologies. Do you see how important it is that we have workers, skilled workers, who understand the scope of work, of this cosmic vision of work? That it's not just about good ministers, but good administrators. I've heard the criticism, um, and I may have even said it myself. Um, you know, the, the church, it's not a business. But the thing is, oftentimes businesses, they're really run better than churches. That's the truth. That's, that's what I've seen, that you have churches that are just not administered very well at all, whereas you have businesses that are actually administered quite well. My critique in the midst of all of this is, why does the administration of the church have to be so obtuse at times, backwards? And doesn't the administration of the world and businesses and companies and corporations, don't they do this a lot better? Now, you might object, and I'll wrap up with this. You might say, but the world, the world is immoral. How dare we say that we should be using the world's methods to administer the church? I mean, after all, Wayne, it was you who said Machiavelli was the one who taught us that it is good to be bad and bad to be good. And isn't that the science of household management that the world has adopted? True, true. And wasn't it you that taught us that Nietzsche said that the will to power is really all that matters in the end? And that the business world, all they're doing is just advancing themselves in this blind ambition and this naked aggression, this will to power. Isn't that what you said? Well, yes. That is what Nietzsche taught. And yes, I would argue, or I think that argument holds that the world operates according uh, to a philosophy of power. But I think of one last, I think of one story, which I'll share with you in closing. 
I think of this um, science fiction book that I read years ago. It was actually referred to me by um, somebody from the military. And the book is called Ender's Game. And Ender's Game is about um, basically about war. It's about the art of war. There you have it. Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And it's about beating the enemy at all costs. In some ways, the naked aggression that is the will to power and advancing myself by any, any means and any schemes. In fact, Machiavelli would have loved, he would have enjoyed reading Ender's Game because in the end, no matter how many people you have to kill, you, you, have, to, you have to advance yourself. And really, it's, it's for your own betterment. It's good for you to be cunning and deceiving like that. But at the end of the book, I apologize for the spoiler here. Um, and, you know, if you want to just not listen to the rest, but just listen to the rest. At the end of the book, the chief protagonist, the main character who, who was manipulated and used by the institution of the army, the military, in this science fiction book, who was used to defeat the alien enemy, um, he has this exchange with Colonel Graff. And he's angry because he didn't realize that he was used to basically kill everybody, to kill the entire enemy, to eliminate the competition. That's Darwinian. That's, that's the, the rules of the world today. And he yells at Colonel Graff and he says, why did you make me do this? And Colonel Graff, Colonel Graff says, we won. That's all that matters. And this character, Ender Wigan, he says, no, the way we win matters. I want you to hear that, that in the work world that operates according to the Darwinian scheme of survival of the fittest and ruthlessly and, and schemingly, like Machiavelli, eliminating the competition so that we can advance our own will to power. If that's all that matters in the world, then really it's a, it's a cold, heartless game. But this admonishment from this young Ender Wigan that says, no, the way you win matters. This is a very sound and I think sober voice to those of us in the marketplace. That your administration counts for a lot. Good administration of the mystery is really what we need today. We need good administrators that can bring together to the same table Jew and Palestinian disparate elements, even competing people in the oil industry. It requires good administration, but in the end, the way you do it matters. That we do not live and operate in the work world to just crush the competition or to just um, ruthlessly advance ourselves. The way we win matters. And just because the world's methods are immoral, it doesn't necessitate bad administration of this mystery. My friends, those of you who are not ministers, I'd like for you to hear this closing admonition. You are gifted in ways that pastors are not. So administer economics, this science of household management. And whether it's in the company boardroom or the church boardroom, Remember, the way you win matters. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to learn more, visit us online at www 
www.oikonomics.com. That's O-I-K-O-N-O-M-I-K-S dot com.